Support comes from Clipper Vacations with savings on a Victoria, B.C. getaway during the spring sale. 20% off a Clipper Fast Ferry round trip plus two nights hotel and kids travel at half price. Details and booking at clippervacations.com slash NPR. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Good to have you along with us. We figure out what happened this week. We discuss from different viewpoints. I've invited some excellent folks to spend some time with you. Seattle Times editorial board writer Claudia Rowe. Welcome back, Claudia. Thanks for having me back. We have writer and editor Sarah Ann Lloyd. Sarah, it's great to have you on the show. Yes, absolutely. Current real estate investor, but former Washington State legislator, Bill Finkbeiner. Welcome back. Good to see you. Thank you, Bill. And you can watch the show on YouTube. Well, you guys can't. You have to focus on the radio show. But everyone else can watch you because we are on YouTube, streaming live. Just search KUOW Public Radio. Let us begin this week with how we teach our children. Book banning is at an all-time high nationwide Our state legislature is in session. Democrats are supporting a bill to limit these book challenges. KUOW education reporter Sam U.S. told us this bill would prohibit schools from banning books just because they're written by or about marginalized groups like people of color in the LGBTQ community. Senator Twina Nobles and other Democrats say the bill will help keep diverse and inclusive books in public schools. I believe every child deserves to encounter characters and stories that resonate with their own experiences, their own background and identity. But ahead of the vote, Republicans like Senator Ann Rivers called the bill an overreach. This bill truly represents the fact that the legislature is slowly moving school boards towards extinction. Okay, so there's a little hint there. Legislature, state level, school boards, local level. One more thing I want to add before we discuss this. There's another bill in Olympia that would require the inclusion of histories, contributions, and perspectives of LGBTQ people in age-appropriate school curricula. School boards would have to adopt curricula covering such groups as Native Americans, Hispanic Americans, people of different religions, and people who are neurodiverse. So, we were talking about this before the show started. On social media, this boils down to you are imposing degenerate values on children or you're a puritanical, mind-controlling bigot. And we that's not really the big picture. What's going on here? Bill Finkbeiner, you told me you think this is more about a grown-up fight than really children's education. Yeah, that's the way it feels to me. It, you know, it's almost like, isn't this sort of an argument that happened maybe like 60 years ago? I mean, really, book banning at this point in time uh, to try to, you know, get a bunch of folks all stirred up about that just feels like uh, in this world where where so much media and information is open uh, to really fight about, uh, a, you know, fight to ban books uh, feels like uh, really uh you know, the cows are gone. You're trying to close the barn door. Well, let me ask you, you were a Republican state uh, representative and senator, right? Uh, state senator, state yeah. State senator. Were you were you um, more in touch, more in line with your Republican Party when you served than you would be today? Uh, I definitely was more when I served. But even then, uh, you know, I had a lot of differences of opinion, especially on issues like this. And, uh, you know, we had a, a, a music band that came before the legislature when I was there. And uh, that's what this feels a little bit to me like. And I always thought the ironic thing about that, too, is, you know, you do a music band or a book band. And really, generally, what you're doing is is uh, bumping the sales of that music or the books that you're trying to ban. Mm-hmm. Uh so, yeah, it, it, it does feel like an anachronism. It feels like an argument we had in the 90s as opposed to one that uh, is appropriate for today. Or you could say it's um, kind of a cynical move because the people who are ma- uh, pushing for these bans surely know that. They surely know this is this increases sales, interest, desirability of the band object or book or film or music. Mm-hmm. Um, so there maybe is another reason Um for pushing this kind of thing. And that reason would be? Uh, I don't know. Um, Packing school boards with people who might want things like vouchers. Um, Other reasons, other larger reasons that that affect more people than books. I mean, there is the... 
larger cultural context of now versus 40 years ago, which is that we have, I mean, this feels like the libs of TikTok bill, right, where there is a social media account um, of a conservative, I would would say like more than conservative woman, she's like very far right, uh, taking liberal social media posts, especially from teachers, and posting them on Twitter with commentary. Um, And it's very it has a history of um, leading to a lot of complaints to school boards and to individual schools and against teachers from people that have no horse in the race. Um, for example, I mean, one thing that I brought up when we were talking earlier is, I mean, it's a fight between adults. I 100% agree with that. But kids do really tragically get caught in the middle of this. Um, there was one teacher that was targeted by libs of TikTok that ended up basically being forced to resign for... Um, stating support for queer students. And then a kid at that very school was um, killed in the bathroom after they had uh, specifically kept kids from using uh, gender-affirming bathrooms. Um, okay, well, let me ask you about this because we, I, I don't know, I, I didn't know before you told me about it, about libs of TikTok. And we're, we've brought up sort of um, hidden agendas. Um, but to the issue of whether... And when to ban a book from curriculum or from a school library is there are there we were talking before the show that there are legitimate concerns about uh, well who decides but like understandable concerns about what is age appropriate what is fine for an older kid not a younger kid sometimes that gets into enforcing the norms we like or the norms other people like, then there's the question of who gets to decide. Is it the state? Is it, the, is it at the local level? And we sometimes switch on that equation. Sometimes people want federal control when they, when they want federal control or state or local. So how do we live together in Washington state on this issue? I think one thing we're kind of all saying is that this feels like it's a, it's a political thing as opposed to an education thing. This feels like the Politi- you know the politicization of our school boards where it's it's become less about how to educate kids the discussion and it feels like the people that are pushing for the book ban are just looking for something salacious that they can do to you know get a foot in the door to try to get folks that they want elected to the school board as opposed to showing up to the school board because they're concerned about students and they're concerned about education and it it's really you know I think the thing we can do is try to look at issues that affect kids education affect their safety in the schools and affect the education that's happening as opposed to uh, you know what feels like to me kind of a diversion of you know adults arguing about something that that really isn't going to uh, you know impact uh, and especially the folks that are driving this, because it's clearly an agenda to try to get people elected to the school board by fomenting outrage about something that, you know, is in a library someplace. Absolutely. And if it was really about education, um, many parents and many teachers would say, hey, whatever my kid is reading, if they're reading, right. that's better than scrolling, you know. <laughs> um, and there are a lot of educators I've encountered throughout my life, not only as a journalist, who who have said Whatever they're reading, they're reading. That that's the key. Um, so that's what I mean. I I, I think this is kind of a red herring. I don't yeah, think- but how, well, I'm asking, how does sus- thinking it's a red herring and suspecting their motives, very understandably, how does that get us toward a solution in our democracy? Does it mean that we just we just ignore like the 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 questions, for example, of what's age appropriate? You know. Uh, that because because probably they're just um, uh, they have their own secret agenda. We're just not going to we're going to the way we're going to live together is not consider. We're, we're never going to keep a because there's all kinds of compromises we could have. We could have well, all right, you're you specific parent. We will take we'll we'll give your kid something else to read, which is what the law says yeah. is what the law proposes and and that's fine that's great okay. i i mean if these parents are saying it should be more about you know respecting what parents want then great you could talk about this troubling book at home with your kid mm-hmm. or you could um talk to the teacher and ask for a different book for your kid great then let's let's take these parents at their word and say good 
then you talk to your child at home about what you see as problematic about this book. Engage in a conversation with your child. Great. Have it be at the parent level. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think this law is, is a really common sense kind of set of guidelines to just keep keep people that are being disingenuous about their motives from just wasting everybody's time so we can focus on those conversations in our school districts that are genuine concerns from parents. Um, I am also in the camp of as long as they're reading, I, I love it. Um, kids have been finding age-inappropriate material since they were cave children, probably. Yes. Um, yes. But I, I like having these kind of... Um, this rubric in place for uh, what we will actually entertain when we're focusing on educating our children. Yeah. Well, we'll follow this uh, through the legislature. It's generally along party lines at this point, but uh, we'll see whether uh, I know about two bills that I think are still alive and we'll see whether those uh, bills make it to uh, the governor. Well, let's talk two bills. Pardon me? Those two bills. We have two bills on the show. We have two. Either one are going to the governor. (laughs) (laughs) You got closer than I did, Fake Miner. So that's what kids are reading. Let's talk about how how we know what kids have learned. Because, you know, the grades in Washington may not indicate how well a student is doing in school. Claudia, I read about this in the Seattle Times research out of Harvard and Stanford suggesting that test scores are flat or down, and yet grades are up because teachers are inflating those grades? Yeah, they are. This certainly isn't a new thing. It's yeah. as, as we all know, this has gone on time immemorial, right? But I think the key graph in that Seattle Times story from earlier this week is that um, OSPI uh, says that 70% of ninth graders passed all their classes in uh, last year, in the 22-23 school year, yet uh, the testing data doesn't look like they're all at grade level. So, hmm, what what is that, right? And as a parent, y- you you want to feel like when your kid brings home some kind of solid grade, that is a true reflection of what they know. But I think many parents feel increasingly that it is not a true reflection. And and that is concerning. So isn't that an argument for standardized, well, t- just testing? They either know it or they don't? What? Well, I know there's a lot of opposition to standardized tests. I don't think standardized tests prove that a kid absolutely knows something or absolutely doesn't. Some yeah. kids are bad testers. Yes. But when there's a wild skew in the kid's grade and their test score, something's going on there. Something is off. Well, what could, But a grade is subjective. I mean, some teachers grade on a curve. Some, there's, great, there's one reason there's grade inflation, I think, is because when a kid gets a good grade, a high grade, Think how many happy people there are. The kid's happy. The parents are happy. The school looks successful. Look at how high our grades are. So what about we as a culture? Are we implicated in encouraging grade inflation? I think grades have always been subjective. I remember uh, Mrs. Cook in seventh grade, and uh, everybody that went to her class at least once a week got an A. (laughs) Really? Yep, and she'd give us all a hug on the way out of class. And it was Uh, really nice, and I think that was the only A I got that year. And uh, How about hugs? I hope you got more than just from Mrs. uh, I don't remember that, but it's like, uh, you know, I think there's always been a tremendous amount of subjectivity, and then other teachers obviously would grade, you know, really at a much higher standard. I think that standardized tests, there's no perfect way to measure what students are learning, but standardized tests are, I think, a much more objective uh, measurement. And they can tell us important information about how our kids are doing. And to me, that was a big part of, you know, the the articles that I read on this was uh, how much students have fallen back on the standardized tests. Uh, Not that, you know, I'm less concerned if, if grade inflation is going up across the board uh, you know, maybe that gives less information to parents and teachers. But I think I'm more concerned if objectively students are doing worse in math and reading uh, year over year and and significantly worse since COVID, really. Uh, to me, that's a big red flag in this. Uh, I went to a high school that had no grades. Uh, oh, yeah? And uh, I'm, I'm alive, uh-huh. uh, which is great. <laughs> um, so um, Nova Project, it's still a Seattle public school. Um, it's over by Garfield. 
Over by Garfield, uh, they used to tell a joke, how do you get a Nova kid to cross the street? You tell them they'll get credit for it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it was 80% pass, no pass. Um, And if you didn't complete the coursework in time, not always, but you could often um, just kind of keep doing the work until you finished, um, Mm -hmm. which is how – and we kind of built a lot of our own uh, classwork too. Um, And we were very well aware of the district – Uh, rubrics and competencies like I took um, a class for health credit where I put in the hours through uh, something that did not give me all the competencies but then I did projects afterwards to fulfill the stuff that we didn't cover Mm -hmm. Um, and it was like a women's group that I was in Um, and I mean I think that that's also I don't think it's sustainable on like a really grand scale because it requires so much individualized attention Uh, maybe we just you know the age-old need for more teachers Um, Mm -hmm. But there are other ways to do it. Um, and, you know, we had pretty good test scores, at least at the time that I was there. I haven't looked at them recently, but, yeah. Yeah. So what are we supposed to do? What, are, what, what, do, we, what do we do? <laughs> uh, to me, I, I, I think the, the big thing we should be looking at is, is what was the impact of uh, our state's reaction to COVID on our students? And, and not to assign blame or, you know, dig it back up, but to try to find a way to do better if we get into this situation next time. So our top priority is to plan for the next pandemic. I, I mean, I think it's uh, it's you have to have a plan in place, and it's not necessarily a pandemic. There's lots of reasons that we could decide that, you know, students, uh, you know, we need to, to close schools for a period of time and to, and to look at what impact does that have on students and how can we keep students and teachers safe. I mean, it just, it, to me, it's just, it's a huge, you know, it's a, we're looking at uh, basically five months uh, behind uh, where students were before in Seattle and, and almost a full year behind in, in Yakima and Auburn uh, in reading and math. And that's, that's a significant impact that those kids are going to be dealing with the rest of their lives. And, and I think also along with looking back and tri- figuring out how we do better is figuring out maybe we owe those kids a little bit too. They they bore the brunt of a, of a really significant impact on their education, and maybe it is more tutoring, more teachers, more support for those kids that that face that during COVID. Because uh, to me, that really, I, I, you know, I'm I feel bad for them. I think uh, the first thing is honesty. Let us please be honest about the reality here, because not everyone is being honest about it um, at the state education department. They say learning loss is a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't really happen. Um, I see wildly variant responses from different school districts. Um, Seattle Public Schools, for instance, is not throwing in with intensive tutoring, which pretty much everyone across the country, including in Washington, D.C., at the state uh, department of education, you know, High dosage tutoring is the way to get kids back on track, but not everyone's doing it. I don't think we're getting strong leadership in that direction from um, the state education department because I think that there's a strong bias towards saying, it's good, it's good, just keep going, we'll just roll forward, we're all good. We're not all good. Mm-hmm. No. Well, we have been tutoring you on the topic of grade inflation here on Week in Review. We're going to... Um, We're going to take a little break and come back. We're going to check in on policing in Seattle, a big concern for our listeners, and cover more stories of the week when we continue here on Week in Review. Don't go away. You are probably listening, possibly uh, watching on YouTube, KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. I'm here with writer-editor Sarah Ann Lloyd. We've got uh, former Republican state lawmaker Bill Finkbeiner, Seattle Times Ed Board writer Claudia Rowe. I know that Week in Review listeners are concerned about policing and public safety and crime, so we check in on Seattle police regularly. I think most of us know that Seattle officer Kevin Dave was speeding through a South Lake Union crosswalk last year on an emergency call. He was flashing his overhead lights and chirping his siren, and a woman named John V. Candula was in the crosswalk, and Officer Dave crashed his cruiser into her and killed her. Well, this week, King County prosecutors said 
after investigating, they've decided not to file felony criminal charges against Officer Dave. The Seattle City Attorney could still charge him with negligent driving, but at the at the county felony level, the county prosecutor said, quote, we lack sufficient evidence under Washington state law to prove a criminal case beyond a reasonable doubt. The family of, a, of the young woman said that they are shocked. They issued a statement, and the statement said that they are shocked and disappointed. Um, how, well, how, can, how can you help listeners think about what happened and the justice or not of felony charging this officer? I mean, there's no justice available here, right? Even if the accident, accident was unavoidable, um, a person is dead that should not be dead. Um, and there's no justice. Um, and sometimes there just is no justice, which I hate. But the thing that uh, in terms of justice, we can control uh, what frustrated me about this story um, is that um, his partner, uh, who made really inflammatory remarks on a phone call with the um, head of the police union, um, has not been fired yet. Um, and Police Chief Diaz has had a month to consider whether or not to fire him, and he is still not fired. And this was not his partner in the cruiser, but a union right. rep who was discussing right. the case, I think the next day or very soon afterward. Right. Uh, what else about the about the charging decision? To, um, to I believe we're, we're supposed to hear in early March um, regarding the union vice president and whether the chief is going to discipline or fire that person. Um, I... To Sarah's point, there's no justice for a dead woman who shouldn't be dead. Uh, What is sort of um, floating around this story is the response of the police union, this kind of joking cavalier, oh, yeah, just write a check. Um, You know, her. what did he say? Something like she's of limited value. This is a union official says that. That he was not being cavalier. That he that they the two of them were bitterly um, sort oh, this of this was gallows mo- humor. Gallo- well, or I mean, we do. I'm just I'm telling you what this union official says mm-hmm. that people do laugh. There's there's a lot of different ways to laugh, and the his claim is that this was a sardonic sort of take on what lawyers do, that they they try to put a price on somebody's life and talk that down. So that I, I don't know what was in his head, but that's just before we say it was cavalier, not cavalier. That's that was his defense of himself. He was being and he wasn't presenting to anyone. He was he was it was he was accidentally recorded having this private conversation. But go True, on. but it's consistent with many other things going on in right. the Seattle Police Department. Such that's a- where the interpretation comes right. from. Right. I mean, it, it sort of line. It, perhaps it's unfortunate that it lines up with um, many indicators of a sort of general culture of, um, you could call it contemptuousness, you could call it dismissiveness, um, lack of seriousness um, regarding the people that Seattle police are supposed to protect and serve. Right. And Mike Solon is, you know, the union president that was claiming that this is, was joking around. Um, I mean, it's not like he's given us any reason to give him the benefit of the doubt on this. Um, you know, he's fought reform. Um, he's minimized um, you know, officer-involved violence. I, 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 I want to hear from Bill Finkbeiner, but I'm asking, would it be justice to pile, maybe your answer is yes, you know, but to, to pile those associations that you have with the Seattle Police Department onto a specific charging case when he says, well, this was actually what I was thinking when you heard me laugh. Does he get, is that, is it, is it just to judge him Otherwise, not take him at his word, but to partly because the associations that you just described, you're probably more likely to think this guy was so callous. If you already thought Seattle police are so callous and arrogant and insulated and, you know, understandably, that's how we judge people. But is that just would that be justice for him to be judged that way uh, when he's disciplined, if he's disciplined? I think I think there's two uh, parts to it. I think there's there's justice and that and that's a, you know, a, a court and and the decision to, to not charge the officer who is driving. Then I think there's a, a big question about the culture of the Seattle police and that sort right. of what feels to me on the other side of the lake, like a 
dysfunctional relationship between Seattle and its police department that's getting to the point where the Seattle police culture feels like, and and maybe it's partly because they feel uh, sort of under threat and and antagonized, understandably after the last few years. But it, it's getting it's getting to the point where it doesn't. It feels like maybe it's a bunker mentality, but it feels like this incident and others that the culture of the Seattle Police Department is really starting to separate from the city, and and it doesn't feel like it's a the solution is necessarily and in this instance uh to me what i heard sounded sounded cavalier and sure. uncaring uh yes. in the recording that i heard to me too and it, so and and so regardless of what's done with this person what it feels to me like is well you can you can uh you know you can punish people or you can fire people to change a culture and that feels like it needs to needs to happen and at the same time seattle needs to to me, to, un, to to sort of come to grips with, okay, they, they want a police department. They've decided they're going to have a police department. Now now have one that functions well. And, and this doesn't feel like it's functioning well, and it doesn't feel like uh, Seattle feels represented by their police force. And that, that's, a, that's a big deal. I mean, there's, you know, th- that happens at different times to different degrees in different cities, but it feels like it's, uh, it's a separation that's, again, it feels like a dysfunctional relationship to me. And, you know, there's one thing when people, when you catch officers sort of saying things you you wouldn't want them to be saying, okay, don't like that. That's one thing. It's another thing when officers delay, you know, 20 minutes to go to a priority one shooting. It's literally inaction. The Seattle Times story called it lackadaisical. I would call it negligent. To to help listeners out, we're now talking about a different issue of a couple of uh, officers in Soto who were very slow to respond to a, a Priority One report. Priority One of a person who had been shot, who really was shot and showed up at the hospital shot. And um, according to the report, three officers, one of whom was in training by 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 one of the senior officers, um, delayed 20 minutes to, to get snacks. You know, it's mm. not like they were doing something urgent. Um, and... A person could have died. You, you know, th- this this is beyond sort of nasty talk. This is literally inaction. Yeah. It's a serious concern. And this is what's happening with people that are being trained. Like this is their introduction to working as a police officer is having their superiors say that it's OK to stop and get a snack on the way to a priority one shooting. The trainee was the one who said, yeah, that didn't seem right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, ready to go. Yeah, it feels it, it feels like there's you know significant reason for concern. Uh, I think Seattle also needs to find examples of what it does want out of its police and support those and try to find areas where they can say, okay, this is where uh, you know we feel like the right thing was happening. And uh, obviously, that's happening all the time. It's not you know what we hear about and read about, but uh, it, it's a it it feels like the culture there is starting to. It, especially again, taking twenty minutes to leave over a shooting. I mean, that's that 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 was shocking to me to read that. I haven't seen a direct defense of that decision in the in the one article I read. I saw that the the Office of Police Accountability found that these officers violated professionalism standards, failed in their job to protect the community. That the police chief agreed, but that. Either I don't know whether it was up to him specifically or whether he was okay with a this was a nine hour suspension. Yeah. A day off without pay. Day off without pay. So but I haven't yet heard that the chief or anyone else directly to to explain to us why did that seem like an like an appropriate punishment? Because there was some reason somebody thought it was appropriate unless it was just a a wink wink. No one's ever going to hear about this. I have not heard. uh, I don't have an answer to the question you're posing. And the the way this broke, I believe, was Divest SPD, uh, which is a Twitter account. Um, So perhaps they didn't, you know, think some random Twitter poster out there who isn't so random um, was going to pick up on this. But they should. They should. They should be well aware that people are watching. I mean, a lot of people are watching. And I mean, and there has been a lot, a huge uptick in citizen journalism about the police department, especially after 2020. Um, and at this point, they should 
Yes, know very, very, very well that someone is digging through everything that happens in the police department with a fine-tooth comb. And And my guess is that they do know and they don't care. And that's perhaps more of a concern. Well, here's here's one way to look at it. Um, from again, from the this is the Seattle Times article I read. One at least one of the officers said he was relying on his experience. He was sure the victim would be gone when police arrived, which turned out to be the case. Um, he also I, again I don't I, I may be um, conflating the two officers, but at least one officer said that the that the lights and siren response quote heightens my stress level close quote and can become a public safety issue for other drivers on the road. Meaning, so what he meant by heightens my stress level could have meant I could I could be driving recu- recklessly or showing up recklessly, and that can threaten people. And we're, we're just talking about an officer who sped through an intersection and killed somebody. And one of the criticisms I remember when that happened was that he didn't need to be going so fast because, yes, he was responding to an overdose call, but he had also heard on the radio part, or if he was listening, it was a little unclear what he was listening to. He was doing a lot at once. But there were there was information being relayed that the person who had said, I have overdosed on caffeine, uh, on uh, cocaine, caffeine, cocaine right. on cocaine, but the person was awake and lucid. And fine. They're, yeah. And fine. However, so, but you see... He, so I think the implication is he should have relied on his better judgment and and slowed down. Whereas if someone had if someone reports an overdose and they get an emergency call and the cop doesn't slow down, they can understandably be called on the carpet for being lackadaisical about someone who had reported an overdose. So is that fair a way to look at it that that. They're using their judgment whether we like it or not. It feels like being able to drive in a safe manner with your lights on seems like kind of a prerequisite prerequisite for being a a police officer in charge of, especially one in charge of training other police officers. Yeah. Also, somebody shot. I mean, there was no question that somebody had been shot and, and... and well, there could be a, could have been a false report. There could have been, been but shot, by but the time they got there, there was you know sort of nothing left to investigate, and right. you might want to get there quickly to right. see if there some, is something to investigate. I'm not defending them in the individual case. You see what I'm getting at? That yeah. we we want people, we want cops to make the right call. We, we do, and I can see how it's it's very difficult. I mean, as it's been talked about, there's 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 a lot of scrutiny right now, and a lot of second guessing uh, whatever police do. And uh, and and they're going to they're human beings and they're going to make mistakes like like all of us do. And I can understand how that would be uh, a really difficult work environment to operate in when you feel like you you have to make life and death decisions. And then, you know, and then if you make the wrong one anywhere along the line, you're going to get, you know, drugged through the media over it at the same time. Uh, what felt to me when they interviewed those folks and said, why didn't you go there after the shooting was reported? And they said, well, the lights heighten my stress level and lead to, uh, you know, a danger to the public. To me, that felt like a snide comment directed at the people who are against. And there's a, the bill in the legislature about, uh, you know, pursuit. Uh, pursuit. Exactly. Mm. That to me felt like it was a comment on. Well, if people don't want me driving fast, and right. then I'm just going to have another, you know, burrito, and I'll get there when I get there. And that—that to me is what feels like the concern. I—I I understand how it is a very difficult job to be a police officer, and I understand how it's even got to be more difficult when you feel like, again, any mistake you make is going to be is going to be second guess. But at the same time, it's also a super important job. And if somebody's shot. That should be, to me, feels like it should be a high priority to get there right away. And and regardless, if you think they're going to be gone or not, to still, if you think it's a credible uh, report that somebody was shot, to to show up quickly. And that that is a concern to me when if they're starting. Well, you know, whatever, everybody's going to not like what I do anyway. Then yeah, so we'll just sit here for another ten minutes. And the police department agreed with that, but it was one day suspension. Yeah. Right. Um, And I think the snide comment thing really gets back to what we're talking about, about a fundamental culture problem. And I feel like if they are, if they're essentially, why can I not talk today? If they're essentially getting these jobs to help the public, it feels like if there is a concern from the public, the reaction should be, 
well, let's figure this out. Um, I want to do my job well and not well. I I don't know anything about that. Uh, I guess I'll just rebel against yeah. it. It's, it seems just very, very backwards about what public safety is supposed to be about. Yeah. So we're back to that again, that I can't read either the minds of either one of those officers, but I had the same reaction that you all did. It sounded it sounded snide. Mm-hmm. It sounded dismissive. Uh, in the case of the union rep, it sounded callous. Mm-hmm. And the backdrop is, is, a, is a huge lack of trust. Mm-hmm. And that's what you were and, saying. They're like, well, how are we going to rebuild this You got to, trust? because it's it's a super important job, and, and, and you know, it's not going to—it's not an easy fix. It's like a relationship that just feels—I keep saying this, but it feels to me like a dysfunctional relationship where a little bit both sides are like, you know, lost confidence and trust in each other. Yeah, and it's it, that's that's a super important, you know, a role that public safety, it's needed, and— yeah. uh yeah, it's going to be hard. All that right, we we got to take a break. We'll see. New officers are are over time on the way. A new city council, um, new you know, new training. We're going to see what's what is what's the next gen police department. More of the same, uh, a different kind of officer. Will a different kind of person want to be a Seattle police officer? This is going to be. <laughs> Claudia, am I allowed to share that uh, you look skeptical? <laughs> oh, you can share anything you want. Yes, okay. making faces. Yes. <laughs> Maybe the good news is is that is in that issue where uh, uh, they didn't show up for twenty minutes and they interviewed the three of them. And it was the new person who said, yes. boy, that really didn't feel right. Thank you. So That's maybe right. It is changing. That's right. It's That's really. A- yes. Thanks for finding the sunny. <laughs> there you go. The filament of sunshine in that one. Well done, Bill Finkbeiner, former uh, state lawmaker, Republican state uh, rep and senator. We have Seattle Times' Claudia Rowe. We have writer-editor Sarah Ann Lloyd. And we're going to take a short break and come back and wrap up this week in review. KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke here with Bill Finkbinder, Claudia Rowe, Sarah Ann Lloyd. A couple stories that we haven't had a chance to mention yet. On the quick side, the, a bicycle uh, cyclist who got attacked by a cougar near Fall City on the trail got released from the hospital, which is good. However, her daughters say that their mom has uh, suffered severe face trauma and permanent nerve damage. She was riding with four other women when the cougar attacked, and the other cyclists wrestled the cougar off of her, pinned it down with a bike. Yeah. And uh, this woman's daughter, who's uh, uh, this woman who's been released from the hospital, her daughters say their mom is staying positive and hoping to get back on her bike soon. Um, another story this week is that the, the food delivery company DoorDash says it's going to go back to Seattle City Hall and try to negotiate changes to the city's new minimum wage for gig workers. This uh, new law requires companies to pay gig workers a minimum wage per minute and per mile. DoorDash imposed a $5 per order fee, it said, quote, to cover costs, and they say customer orders dropped. And that hurts restaurants and DoorDash drivers. The gig workers say don't blame the law for that. Blame the fee, which is retaliatory. Anyway, DoorDash says it's reaching out to the newly elected Seattle City Council in hopes of changing the law. So we'll follow that. And then you should have your presidential primary election ballot now or very soon. The Democratic ballot has Biden, Dean Phillips, and Marianne Williamson, who's not actually a candidate anymore. She's dropped out. Republican ballot has Trump and Haley, who are candidates, and DeSantis, Ramaswamy, and Christie, who are not. And to have your vote counted, this is a a special case. You have to identify as either a Republican or a Democrat and then fill out that party's ballot. You're not stuck with that label because other Washington elections don't, and they're not going to ask for your party. But in this case, uh, and you can act, you can vote for whoever in the general election, but on this ballot that's in front of you, you have to identify. Do you think, does anyone think it's unethical to declare yourself a member of a party that you really don't want to elect and vote for a candidate who you think will cause that party to lose? Is that unethical? I sure don't think that's unethical. I think the the parties have have really you know overstepped their their role in in uh, in the way they sort of put the public on the hook for uh, these elections. And then in this case, they're going to ignore the outcome as far as uh, designating people to the conventions uh, because they are concerned about exactly what you're talking about. So they're going to uh, elect their delegates through the caucus system. Um, 
so yeah, you know, uh, I think it's a, absolutely ethical to 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 vote for whoever you want to see do the best uh, and lie about your party you're, affiliation you're gonna as you're doing up, it. You're gonna you're gonna end up on a lot of mailing lists, yes. uh, which is why they want <laughs> they want people to do that. Good point. Uh, but uh, no, I I thought it was weird. You know, up until uh, the early two thousands, there you know there was no party requirements for uh, you know primaries. You could vote for whoever the heck you wanted, and then the parties basically took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and and uh, a long time ago got the uh, uh, requirement that you had to designate a party in order to vote in the in the primaries, and then you could only vote for the people in that party in the mm-hmm. primary, and then uh, Washington citizens overturned it. I think. Uh, rightly. Anybody else? I mean, I think it's just one small part of a very large mess that is federal presidential elections. And it's not really something that I I think is uh, a large enough, uh, I don't know, a large enough problem on the (laughs) giant pile of problems with federal elections. (laughs) Yeah. I don't hear you being in a quandary. Yes. Okay. Uh, Claudia, you seem okay with it too. I am... I think there should be more civics education. Okay. That's where I'll leave it. Let's agree yes. on that. Yeah. Um, another item this week, a nonprofit law firm that advocates for low income and marginalized people says that Washington's prison labor system, quote, is nothing short of modern day slavery. Sarah, you brought this to my attention. What do, what do they mean? Yeah. Um, so this is actually a nationwide problem. Um, and companies have come <clears throat> under fire for taking advantage of this um, for a long time. Like Whole Foods uses prison labor um, to get cheap labor to like manufacture cheese. Um, it's a loophole. It's actually a loophole to the 13th Amendment that you can enslave people for punishment. Uh, some states don't even pay prisoners to work. Um, Washington is a state that does pay people to work, um, but they pay them you know, anywhere from like anywhere from like 50 cents to like a dollar 50 an hour. It's not don't quote me on that exact range, but it's some jobs go up to 285 per hour, but not all. Right. Right. Um, And one what this report is advocating for is to pay the minimum wage. And one reason that they should be getting minimum wage is because it's I mean, first of all, it's a job. It's it's a job and you get paid money for a job that you do. Um, And these are jobs that they say are, you know, good for job training, so they should be professionalized. Um, I mean, minimum wage is minimum wage because it's minimum. You know, it's legal, minimum. The legal minimum. It's the legal minimum. It's the least you can do. Yeah. Um, but also being in prison is very, very expensive. Um, like there is a, a monopoly on prison communication, essentially. Um, there is a large corporation that owns a smaller corporation that pretty much controls all prison communications. So if you want a video call, it's going to cost you like $16 an hour. Uh, if you want to send an email, that's going to cost you like 30 cents per email. You have to like buy mm-hmm. a stamp booklet. Uh, they have some very, very wide discretion about um, payroll deductions on these checks. They can deduct up to 20% for the cost of incarceration. Uh, they have a lot of deductions. None of those deductions are Social Security. So they also can't have those hours count toward actually getting benefits when they get out. Um, it's very hard to have a savings account. Um, Not the, everything is free. I didn't. Re- I didn't know that. Like your yeah. your toothbrush and et cetera. Yeah, you actually have to, nothing is free. Nothing yeah. is free. If you come in there with no money and you need a toothbrush, they add it to your debt to the DOC. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's and you get um, penalized if you do not work. Yeah. Um, so if you want to focus on your studies or something like that, um, you can get additional time for refusing to work. Yeah. I, I can't I can't understand the art. You were you were nodding as well, uh, Bill, former Republican lawmaker there there. If it's the minimum wage and you're doing a job, how does being having been convicted rightly or wrongly convicted of a crime change the fact that you get minimum wage for working? Well, I I I I separate the two issues a little bit. Uh, number one, I don't th- I think that there are too many instances where uh, we've sort of by privatizing uh, prisons we've sort of added costs and expenses. I I think that you should there shouldn't be your basic needs should be met in prison, um, and that should be a no cost. And and so I don't think people should be forced to work while they're in prison. That said. If they choose to work, I don't see that they uh, should be required to have a minimum wage. They're in prison. 
Um, I think that just the cost of the of the uh, of the bill that I saw was uh, almost a hundred million dollars. I feel like, uh, but the fact somebody, that it's expensive is it shouldn't be expensive. I think that's the 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 fix to me is not to give minimum wage twenty dollars an hour to people working in prison. The fix to me is to not charge for a toothbrush and. Uh, and I think there was like a certain number of emails or video calls that you could do per month without paying, but it shouldn't cost you money uh, to be in prison, and you shouldn't walk out of prison with a debt to just have existed. Okay. That said, I don't, you know, I I don't think that uh, that it should be. I think if you want to work, there's a lot of benefits that prisoners can get from working, but I to me it doesn't feel like uh, somebody who's in prison has has uh, been convicted of a pretty significant. Wrongdoing, and uh, and I think if they if they want to work, they should be able to. They should not, in any case, in ever be forced to work, is the distinction that I make. I still don't get the logical trigger. I know it's expensive, and we don't like when the people uh, commit crimes. People who at least they've been convicted. I still don't know why that changes the equation. That this is the statement: you're working. There's a minimum wage, and whether it's whether it's expensive for the state to incarcerate people or not. It's the minimum wage. But uh, what else? Anything to add? Do we pretty much cover this story? I mean, part of the – one thing that the report raises that's really, really interesting is they scale up. Um, so they have one commissary. That's all they – they have a captive customer base, essentially. So there's there's no competition in the, the prison commissary market. Um, and one thing the report does is it scales up, like, the typical prison wage to the minimum wage and what the equivalent for the cost of that food would be um, – and for a 24-pack of chicken ramen, um, a prisoner saving up to get that ramen is the equivalent of somebody making minimum wage paying $130 for a 24-pack of ramen. Oh. Um, okay. We, this is where I, I have to watch the clock and say we've got four minutes left in the show. I wanted to, I wanted to uh, hear what made anybody smile this week. Also, you told me something I didn't know, Bill Finkbeiner, that the Mariners who are in spring training – uh, have this slogan I've never heard of, and they haven't changed it. Uh, they haven't been getting to the World Series, but they haven't changed their slogan in the last few years. Hey, I, I don't think it's the slogan's fault. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I thought I thought it, the, the the title of the article was kind of funny. It said, uh, "Service said, hey, this is the hungriest team we've ever had.'" I thought, "Oh, is that because the uh, uh, management shut down the uh, the food service yeah, for this commissary?" Yeah, yeah, right, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. No, uh, I actually think this Mariners team is going to be a fun one to watch this year. I think they've got a lot going on. This I think it's going to be a very interesting team. They've got the components that uh, put together. I think their you know their their hitting is going to be a little bit stronger, but there's a lot of question marks in it too. At the same time, and uh, so like every year, yeah. Well, this one more maybe than most. Oh, okay. that definitely. Uh, expectations are lower this year than they have been uh, last year, uh, which which you know is a maybe a hard thing coming in, but hopefully it'll pay off through this season. Okay, so for the if you're curious, the slogan is "Doesn't matter, get better." Get better, yeah. So I'm a player. You're the manager, Skipper. Uh, I wish we had better players on this team. What's your response for? What's your forward response? Yeah, well, to that? I, services response is "Doesn't matter, get better." Yeah, and uh, Skipper, I, my know, ankle really I, hurts when I walk. I think it might be broken. I, I what think, do you have to say to I, me? I think uh, you know. I, I think this is a team that that takes that to heart. I think this is going to be an exciting team, and I think they're going to be. Uh, they want to compete, and they've got the pieces if things fall into place. Yeah. Uh, to really put it together, so if they fall into place, they will have fallen into place. It's all, exactly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of ifs, but it could happen. Okay, two minutes left. Who smiled this week about something that our listeners can benefit from? Uh, I saw a photograph of a duckling riding on a floating piece of pizza. What? <laughs> yeah, you can probably Google it. It'll probably. I think you can Google like "blessed boat" and it will come up. But. And and it's okay if it eats the pizza because it is a duck. It's not right. you know you're not terrified about what's going to happen next. Yeah, it can, um, eat it, it can have its cake. It can have its pizza and float, float on it. Float too. on it too. Yeah. Uh, my reason to smile is. Um, in the sort of dark news about media lately, nationally and everywhere. Um, you know, with with layoffs happening everywhere and uh, the Washington, D.C. NPR station just laid off 15 yep. people yesterday. Yep. Um, I feel like in Seattle, media takes a lot of swings at each other. And I say, great. I'm glad we have a media ecosystem that is large enough that can sustain that. Mm. 
I, I kind of feel, you know, I used to get sort of uh, bristly when people criticized the Seattle Times or wherever I was working. But now I think, great, you know, like we have enough media outlets that that we can do that food fight. So great. Wait, I've got critics. That's fantastic. <laughs> I still, I still exist. Exactly. Listening. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Bill Finkbeiner, well, anything? Yeah. Well, uh, it was an announcement last week that Light Rail is going to open up on the east side on April 27th, which is kind of a big deal. Uh, something that people don't know maybe as much about is the East Rail, which is uh, a 42-mile bike trail that runs uh, sort of north-south is also opening up from Bellevue all the way to Woodenville at the same time. So this oh. coming summer, you'll be able to go from Bellevue to Woodenville, walking, biking, and then in a couple of years, uh, get all the way across Lake Washington and into <laughs> Seattle, which will be nice. Yeah, someday. All right, um, I'll add mine. The Coast Guard is alerting ships in the sailors that they might hit a whale. And the thing is, we didn't used to know so much about where the whales were. Now you've got apps. You can find a whale, report a whale. We've got underwater microphones. They're testing thermal cameras to spot whales at night. And this whale report alert system says it's sending about 100 alerts a week just in Puget Sound right now. I can hear the whale behind in the background. See that? And I wanted to know, do pilots want to know all this information constantly being told, well, you better swerve, you better slow down. So I asked the person who runs the whale trail... And her name is Donna Sandstrom. I said, is there going to be a backlash? And she said, no, the big boat operators are being very cooperative. Nobody wants to hit a whale. So if you want to report a whale sighting, download an app called Whale Alert. And, uh, and you can see where other people are, are alerting as well. Let's hear Can we hear from that whale a little bit, Bernard? Is that That's, a whale? Hear that? I think so. <laughs> that is Bernard Whalette. Is that a Bernard? Or <laughs> running the board. Thank you to Bernard. Thank you to our producer, Kevin Kniestat. Seattle Times, Claudia Rowe. Writer, editor, Sarah Ann Lloyd. Former state representative and senator, Republican Bill Finkbeiner. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for being the show. Thank you Thanks for having, having us. Bill. I would say it a whale if I could. Join us again next week. <laughs> At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.